Hi, CityCast listeners. It's officially springtime, which means it's the perfect time to become one with nature. Even though Houston isn't thought of as your typical place for wildlife, we actually have an environment full of cool creatures. And today, I'm sitting down with Cynthia Lee, author of Field Guide to North American Flycatchers, and nature contributor Scott Solomon to find out about the beauty of birding in our city. It is Wednesday, March 22nd. I'm Akel Moomin, and here's what Houston's talking about today. Cinti, Scott, how are y'all doing this morning? Very good. Doing good, thanks. So I was just wondering, how did either of y'all really get into kind of bird watching and, and identifying birds and trying to figure out which bird is which? Like, how did that end up happening? Well, I started when I was very young, just uh, being interested in nature. And then when I finally got a pair of binoculars and saw my first, I guess it was a summer tanager, it was a bright red bird. And I thought, gosh, this is crazy. How could anyone create a, such a bright bird? And and I got fixated on it. But back, you know, my relationship to geology, it turns out, you know, a lot of geologists are, we, we spend a lot of time outdoors in the field, looking at landscapes, looking at the rocks and I have many friends in geology who have become bird watchers uh, just because they, they're seeing everything. And I think this could happen to almost all of us if you are exposed to nature, even if you haven't done it for 30 years and suddenly exposed, you will start to notice and, and enjoy what's out there. And uh, for me, I ended up being drawn into the world of insects, but I think it's for similar reasons. It's because I, I, I saw them outside, I, I was curious about them, there's so many different kinds and I wanted to know more about them. So for me, sort of insects have been my my excuse to get into the outdoors and learn about nature. But I, you know, I like seeing and, and learning about all sorts of living things and other aspects of, you know, nature, including geology. So I, I actually I love I'm not a birder. I, I really can't claim to be any sort of an expert on birds, but I love going out with Cinti. Uh, and other birders to to learn more about them because you know if you go out and and watch birds with Cinti, you're going to see so much more than you ever thought was possible. Not just the big obvious ones, but little tiny brown birds that are hiding in a bush somewhere. And you know he'll spot them for you and identify them, and you'll learn so much about them. And and next time you see something like that, you have a new insight into this you know amazing natural world we live in. That's amazing. Now, I feel like we need to all, all of us as CityCast Houston, just kind of take a field trip with Cinti to learn more about, about birds and bird watching. The migration celebration is about to come up. And I feel like that would be the best way for kind of people who are interested in birds or want to get into birds to kind of experience it for the first time. But I wonder, Cinti, how could people use the migration celebration as a way to get into bird watching? Where should they go? What's tools that are accessible maybe yeah. to everyday people to kind of identify and learn about these birds? Well, I, I think migration, especially in Texas, is great because that's when some of these most colorful and neotropical birds uh, come through, like Baltimore Orioles. And, you know, seeing one of those, uh, you, you never forget it um, when you're a child or when you're an adult. You know, High Island is a great place to go. Uh, that's about an hour and a half away, big migrant trap. And if you go there any time between like second week of April into the first week of May, you will be surrounded by hundreds of birders and birds are always eager to help you. Wow. And you can go and you don't need to know 
uh, anything. You don't even need binoculars initially, though. They can lend you some and let, let you see through their binoculars. But, you know, how do you get started birding? I think uh, a lot of people may be a little bit intimidated by, you know, the height of the barrier to get in. But actually, I think you can enjoy birds just if you walk uh, in your in a local park, just start paying attention even to the grackle. And once you start paying the grackle, you'll gradually start to pay attention mm-hmm. to other birds. You don't need binoculars. You don't need a book necessarily in the beginning. Just enjoy how they behave. Just stop and watch them slow down. You know, and then you can graduate to putting up a feeder in your yard or uh, and watch the birds come. And, and I think once you start that way, you'll begin to get a little bit hooked. <laughs> and you might buy a book or you might get an app. Uh, iNaturalist works really well. Of course, you have to, it's hard to photograph birds with an iPhone, but yeah. um, you can get a, a, another camera and you upload it. And with things like iNaturalist and Merlin ID, these apps, they really help you get up to speed on learning how to identify uh, the birds. And then once you get a little bit familiar with their, you know, uh, reach out to the Audubon Society or other societies. And uh, there's always people willing to help. And you go out with a, a bird watcher. And what they'll do is they'll show you how to see a bird a little bit. And then you go back on your own and you're, you'll be a little bit better and so forth. And actually, it goes pretty quickly. Before you know it, you might be addicted. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely an easy thing to get hooked on because they're, they're so cool to see and, and learn about. And I was going to add, there's another book that just came out that's also really nice called Slow Birding. Uh, oh, that's right, which, yes. Yeah, which is actually by written by by uh, Joan Strassman, who is a former colleague of ours. She uh, was on the faculty at Rice University for many years and longtime Houstonian. And it's all about kind of, you know, not just looking and identifying a bird, but but taking the time to pay attention and sort of see what it's doing, learn a little bit about its behavior, which is a really fun way, I think, to get into to birding because they're always doing interesting behaviors if you if you just sort of stop and pay attention. I'm hooked. I feel like I need to schedule some time to go to High Island right now. High Island is is like one of the neatest places I, I've been. I, one of my favorite things about it, there are literally bleachers set up looking into the bushes, uh, which I've never seen anywhere else. But that just gives you a sense for how excited people are for these amazing birds that just pass through pretty briefly in our area. But like you can see so many cool things there. You can just sit there in the bleachers and, you know, watch these incredible birds. I mean, where else can you do that? It's so cool. That is amazing. That is amazing. Houston's original neighborhood downtown is for everyone and it's popping. It's our open-hearted home for our biggest celebrations and our treasured hidden gems. From the world-class theater district to incredible green spaces like Discovery Green, downtown is the place to be. In fact, more people visited downtown Houston last year than the entire population of Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, and San Antonio combined. There's no better time to live downtown than now. From starter apartments to luxury lofts, everyone can take Take advantage of the arts, business, culture, entertainment, food, and recreation. Now, you might think of downtown as only the heartbeat of Houston's regional economy, which it is, but there's so much more to it, including free events throughout the week with Downtown Houston Plus. From the Market Square Park Farmer's Market every Saturday to Yoga Flow every Wednesday, you can find something to do and eat and watch in Downtown Houston. Learn more at downtownhouston.org. Downtown Houston, get energized and revived. 
I wanted to talk to you all about ospreys. What are ospreys exactly for people who might not know what they are, considering they get misidentified so much? Yeah, ospreys, they are uh, birds of prey, and we have them here in Houston, mostly in the winter. They're pretty large, but they eat fish, and we often call them fish eagles. They'll fly down into a lake, catch a fish out of the water, pull it up, and uh, you can see them flying out there above you with the fish in their talons, and then they set on the person and then eat it. Pretty cool birds. They are such fascinating birds and how efficiently they fish. Would y'all consider them like some of the best fishing animals, fishing creatures on the planet? Yeah, for sure. They, they get up high and they can see the fish and they don't drop if they don't see that fish and they're good. They sound pretty cool, but they do get misidentified a lot with eagles. Why is that such an easy like transition to kind of immediately assume that they're eagles flying in the sky? They are subtly different. The eagle is actually quite a bit bigger mm-hmm. and uh, it's black and it has a white head, the bald eagle. And the osprey has more of a striped uh, appearance on its head. Uh, if you saw them side by side, you know, completely different, but... <laughs> When something flying over you, it's in the heat of the moment, you could go, oh, it's an eagle. It's <laughs> Everyone an eagle. wants to see an eagle, right? Yeah. And how many of them do you, are like in Texas? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I could give you a number, but certainly even in just Houston, there's got to be quite a few. I, I'd say in, in the winter, we, we must have at least 100 if you ran around all of Harris County. If you go along mm-hmm. the coast from the upper Texas coast down to Brownsville, you know, we probably have thousands, but they are not, they don't flock. You're not going to see many at the same time, oh. the kind of solitary birds. That's the thing I was reading is they kind of have their breeding grounds up in the north, kind of around Canada and whatever. And then they migrate down here when the lakes and stuff freeze over. That's the thing I was wondering about. Do they stay as much in Texas as they would where their breeding grounds are? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Birds, um, we often think of their home as where they breed, but Texas might be their home. And then they go up (laughs) there just for a short time to breed, have babies come back down. And they'll even remarkably come up, uh, even small bodies of water. So the Braised Bayou, these concrete line channels here in downtown Houston, you'll get a few uh, fly over Texas Medical Center. University of Houston gets a lot. Mm. Where I am at Rice, every once in a while we'll see one circling the med center and occasionally going over rice airspace. <laughs> I actually see them almost every day along Brace Bayou because I, I go back and forth uh, on my daily commute and I you know go for runs along Brace Bayou. And this time of year, I, I think I see at least one just about every day uh, along the bayou. Wow. And there's so much fun to watch when they're fishing, right? Because you know they're actually out there catching fish and you can see them diving down. You can see them coming up from the bayou with Sometimes a surprisingly large fish in their talons. They're, they're really a lot of fun to watch. Is that why you find them so intriguing, Scott? Well, for me, it's like, I mean, any living thing that's out there, I, I, I'm interested in as a biologist. But certainly when there's, you know, a large animal that's doing something exciting, I mean, a predator catching prey, it's not just in nature documentaries, it's happening in our backyards. And that's that's super cool. But I did hear that like in the 60s, they were, their population kind of dwindled. And I was wondering how that ended up happening. Yeah, that uh, 
back in the 50s and, and up until the 60s, um, and they were using a particular pesticide called DDT, which was very efficient at eradicating insects. But then the fish start to eat those things or it gets into the water systems. And then it finally goes up the food chain mm-hmm. and up into the birds who are almost at the top of the food chain. Certainly ospreys are. Mm-hmm. And what it did was um, give them their eggs were very, very fragile. So when they tried to lay eggs, uh, the babies uh, wouldn't really make it. And it wasn't just ospreys. It was bald eagles, peregrine falcons, anyone up at the top of the food chain, all the waders, all the herons, pelicans. And so populations plummeted considerably as a result of DDT. Um, wow. You know, if we talk about brown pelicans in Texas, if you go out to the coast of Galveston, you'll see hundreds of pelicans. But back in the 60s, you'd be hard pressed to see even a, one or two. Mm. And so this is a success story of an environmental response where everyone somehow galvanized around it to stop DDT. That's amazing. Because we could see the damage immediately. And once we stopped DDT, the birds came back. The ospreys came back. You know, bald eagles were considered endangered. Uh, and now we have them in Houston. So That is amazing. And, you know, we think it's just for the birds. If you think about them being at the top of the food chain, of course, humans, we're really at the top of the food chain. <laughs> so if it was impacting birds, uh, it was likely impacting us as well. Wow. I love I love a heartwarming, like happy ending to, to it. I, I assume that the work is still being done, but it, it's nice to see like when everyone comes together and kind of does something for the sake of like preserving our nature. But you do like those like rare birds. You wrote a book about an even less identifiable bird for a lot of people, which is which is flycatchers. What are flycatchers exactly? Flycatchers are it's actually the one of the largest family of birds wow. um, in the world. As the name says, they're, they're insectivores, and most of them they flycatch, meaning that they'll sit on a perch and they'll see a a fly or dragonfly or any flying insect and they will shoot out from or launch out from their perch uh, with deadly precision and snap that thing out of the air. Like Miyagi from Karate Kid? I was was going to say that, like chopsticks, (laughs) except it's their bill. They go up, pull it out, and they come back and they eat it and they're very efficient in that. And that's the biggest family of uh, birds in the world. And they, most of them are in the tropics, as you might expect, because that's where most of the insects are. And then in the United States, we get some because in the northern summer, it, it, there's a lot of lights up there and we do have insects. So they're kind of the last frontier for bird identification. And wow. it's largely because although they're so, there's so many, they're very diverse, but they almost all look the same. And their differences are very subtle. It's in their songs and their calls or their, uh, even the way they make their nests and their habitats. It's so subtle. And that's how they know that they're different from each other in terms of species. So this new book is is how to identify things that look essentially identical. It's written in a way that should be accessible to beginners. You don't need to identify it right away. You just need to be able to describe it and focus on mm-hmm. the right uh, features. And then that just makes you a better birder. Flycatchers are kind of the perfect Venn diagram for like Scott, right? Like they're the connection between like, insect life and stuff. So that is really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely a connection with the insects. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sinti's favorite organisms are always eating my favorite organisms, <laughs> but that's okay. No, no hard but, feelings. But I, I have 
through birds, I have found a deep love for insects because they're at the lower part of the food chain. But if there weren't any insects, there won't be any birds. So wow. that's right. I follow the insects too. I don't know as much as Scott, but uh, <laughs> they're all important. They're all important. This yeah. is like a dream team. <laughs> we love it. Well, I really appreciate y'all for coming on and like giving us this tour of everything that happens in our own backyard here in Houston. Every day, every day, I keep learning that this that, that there's more to see, there's more to learn. So I really appreciate y'all. Thank y'all so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, this is great. Thanks. That was Cynthia Lee. You can find a link to his book, A Field Guide to North American Flycatchers, in the show notes. And Scott Solomon, nature contributor and the host of the new podcast, Wild World. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's talk about some news y'all might have missed. I got a new type of eating experience for you, so listen up. EBEB Shrimp Fishing is changing how you think about your seafood eating experience. The location has got an indoor pool where you, and here's the kicker, you can fish for your own meal. The pool has shrimp, crab, and of course, you know in H-Town, we got a half crawfish in there. The brainchild of a former oil and gas driller, Alex Tissot, who after a couple of layoffs decided to pursue an idea he became infatuated with in Taiwan when he was a kid. The idea is simple. You bring the whole family, you fish for some shrimp, crab, and crawfish, they prep your meal, and you eat it. To be honest, we gotta try this, so look out for a follow-up on this spot. Alright y'all, this has been our show today. If you loved it, why don't you share with your friends and let's show Houston the love it deserves. So if you have any ideas for shows, why don't you reach out to us by leaving a text or voicemail at 713-489-6972 and tell us what Houston should be talking about. And for tomorrow, we have a massive surprise for y'all. So tune in. See y'all. Bye. I think I nailed it on the first go. All right. All righty.